Small things. Start small, get big results. That's been our series of sermons for the last few weeks here. Don't underestimate the importance or the power of or the results of small things. A cup of cold water. A mustard seed faith. In the Old Testament, there's a passage in Zechariah chapter 4 where the Israelites were back in the land and they had rebuilt the foundation of the temple. And it was so small that some were crying. They were thinking about Solomon's temple from the past and how glorious it was and this was small. And Zechariah said, do not despise the day of small things. God will dwell here again and that's what's important. That's what he was telling them. Jesus in the New Testament would say in response to that cup of cold water or who you visit in prison or who you take care of, those small things seemingly, he said, you have been faithful in a few things, small things, but I will put you in charge of many things. Matthew 25, verse 21. In the series, Monty reminded us of the small tongue. Yes, it can be destructive, but then it can do many wonderful big things, results as well. Princeton reminded us of the small kindnesses that we can give to other people and the big results of those. Chris reminded us last week of the five loaves and two fishes. Small things, as he thought about some small things seemingly in the past that had influenced big things in this congregation and the school and even his life, among other things. In this final lesson in the series, I want to put a a biblical twist to this concept of small things. We're still going to be going from small to big, but this time... It's small sins to big, bad consequences. A bit of a twist. Just a small sin, just a little white lie, we might say. Little, white, why do we call it that? If we're not minimizing it and making it a small sin. Small sins, small consequences, if any, we surmise. So don't sweat the small sins. They're inconsequential. Is that really true? And of course, intellectually, we know that's not true. That in the Lord's eyes, sin is breaking God's word or his law. That's what sin is. And it's the same. But of course, we can be deceived by Satan to thinking, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. This isn't or that isn't. What do you think would be on your list of small sins? I hesitated to put this this list up because, but then I thought, "Mm, maybe I need to stimulate some thinking here. This might not be your list of what you might consider small, or maybe you don't think that way, but I, I think sometimes we do. And if we do, what would we put on our small list of sins? And you might look at this list and say, wait a minute, there's some big ones on there. Hmm. Some might think it's not. None are small, of course we know that. But just for a minute, can you think of times in yours and my life, well, maybe you can't think about my life, but I can. Can you think about your life where you have rationalized, that you have minimized, to think that, well, this is inconsequential. I know it's wrong, but it's, it's inconsequential. 
there's not a lot that comes out of it. It's not that bad. Our rationalizations can make any sin a small sin and thus inconsequential in our thinking. The best way I know to get at this is to look at some biblical examples. To look at some, some places where we might have thought, you know, they thought that was kind of a small sin. And then hopefully we can see the consequences of that, that they were not inconsequential. And from that we can certainly learn from our, for ourselves. What a blessing the Bible gives us in many of these stories. They're not just stories, are they? They're the story of God's plan, but they have all these other lessons to them as well. And we can see the good, and we can see the bad, and we can see the ugly, and that's for our learning, and that's for our good. We don't have to go very far into the biblical narrative to see a story where we might have our first example. There she is. There's Eve. Her husband is near, Adam, we understand from the biblical text. They're in the Garden of Eden. They're surrounded by this magnificent creation, this beautiful nature that God has given them for their benefit. It is for you. It's to glorify me, but it's, to you. it's for your benefit as well. And, and in the midst of that garden, there was only one restriction, wasn't there? Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. You are free to eat of any of the trees in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And along came the devil and began to challenge that, began to make Eve, and I'm sure Adam, think of some things that might minimize what the Lord was saying. Genesis chapter 3, now the, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He took something that God had made for their protection, for testing them perhaps, to make them rely upon him, to trust him as to what he said was true. And Satan turned that around, and she began to buy that lie. She began to think, well, let's read verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and was also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate, she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate also. That's where the rationalization was taking place in verse 6. Based on what Satan had given her, was she thinking, but, but don't the benefits sound like they outweigh what the Lord might say? I don't know how much she understood about death. Had the Lord explained some of that to her? I don't know. She certainly hadn't seen that so far. So maybe one could argue, well, she didn't understand what death was. And so, of course, she would minimize it. I wonder if she 
if she rationalized, well, just, just this once, just this one piece of fruit. But we look back at it and we say, that was a big sin. I don't know exactly what her rationalization was. That's not clear from the text. But I do know that the devil wanted her to minimize, to rationalize of what God had restricted her and to think about what blessings, what wonderful things could come out of it if she went that direction. And how did complicit Adam rationalize this fact? Perhaps he did the same thing. Again, I I don't know totally what the rationalization might have been, but I do know the consequences. To her as a woman, her future as a woman, her future as a mother, her future relationship to her husband, her role in that situation was affected by this choice that she made, by the consequences of such a small sin. The, the fallout to her family, to Cain and Abel and Seth. Lose the garden. That which would be passed on to all men. Romans chapter 5 says through, through one man sin entered the world and death through that sin. And we participated in that because we sin. But that came to us. The law of sin and death came down to us and we felt the consequences as well. It was such a small sin, but with such big consequences. No, no sin is just a one-off. No sin is just a once. It's not a small sin. This one was a small one and having huge negative consequences that she certainly hadn't thought through well. Have you ever rationalized? Have you and I ever minimized? To think, well, just this once. Many years later, when the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, which God had told them, I have given it to you, even before you step foot in the land. It's yours. I have given it to you. Now, you'll have to follow my instructions to take the land. You'll have to obey my commands. That was, that was a, a thread through the book of Deuteronomy from Moses' writings before they went into the land. You need to obey the Lord. And so you'll have to do certain things. You'll have to do it my way, but it will be yours. And so the first task is to take the city of Jericho. It represents the first fruits of the land. And God, in his way of looking at things, has always demanded the first fruits. I get the first. That's the way you treat me as your God. Still true. And so, yes, after they had marched around the city according to the the instructions, and the walls had fallen down, God had said, you must devote this city to me by destroying it and its people. Take nothing. But once the walls were down, a man named Achan found his wandering eye lusting after some gold and some fine clothing among the loot in the conquest. 
Joshua 7 verse 21 says, When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Once again, we're not given the insight totally to his rationalization, but I I wonder if it might have gone something like this. Well, what would it matter if just one man, eh, one family, keeps some of the finest of the things for themselves? It's not much in the big scheme of things anyway, is it? There's a lot that will be destroyed. Besides, nobody will know. No harm, no foul. Small sin. No consequences. Again, I don't know exactly how he might have rationalized and minimized to think that this was no big deal. But I do know the consequences. Cost him his life. Cost him his family. Cost him their lives as well. What a cost to, to, to pay. What a price to pay. And then, before it was discovered, you'll remember the story. Joshua said, well, Ai is right up the road here, and it's not a big city, and I'll just send 3,000. I don't know in the text. It doesn't say he asked God before he went up there. It looks like he just kind of decided, well... We can do this, so I'll send 3,000 people up there, and the rest of us will stay here. And they got the fire beat out of them. 36 men lost their lives. And when Joshua pleaded to the Lord and and thought, why have you brought us here? And what will people think? And, And what's going on here? The Lord said, in essence, you've got sin in the camp. And so, of course, they discovered that it was Achan. The cost, the consequences. This sin was not inconsequential because nobody knew. Actually, in the text, I wonder if some did know. I hadn't noticed this before. Maybe I should have. But in Joshua chapter 7, verse 11, I want you to listen. They have, God's talking to Joshua. They have violated my covenant which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. They is just aching. I wonder if actually he might have thought nobody will know, but had others come to know? Certainly the blame was being put on more than just aching, it appears. What effect does that have on others? What does that effect have on those who, because you know as well as I do, sometimes, oftentimes, that which we think nobody knows about eventually gets out. It becomes known. And that affects others. Might they have thought, well, if he did it, might that have had an effect on the confidence of the army, it did. I mean, Joshua was, was wrought with hurt and, and disbelief. I thought you brought us here to win. And what confidence will that give the other cities and nationalities here? Well, they think, well, they couldn't even win against AI. 
We'll, we'll beat them. Consequences. Small sin, inconsequential? I think not. This story, just for a second, this story reminds me of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Perhaps you too. You remember they sold a piece of property and represented the, the money that they got from it as the whole price that they paid for it. As if to bring attention to themselves as to what a sacrifice they had made for the sake of the church. It was only partial, wasn't it? It was a lie. In both of these cases, the Lord brought it into view and had significant punishment for it. Death. Did the Lord consider it inconsequential that Achan had done this? Nobody will know. No, the Lord didn't think that way, did he? Ananias and Sapphira, well, did the Lord think that was inconsequential? No, he did not. The hidden sin is not small. Normally it becomes known anyway, and it is not inconsequential, the Bible contends. Surely in my years, I have rationalized from time to time, well, no one will know. And there will be no consequences, or if there are, they, they will be inconsequential. Fast forwarding to the New Testament, Paul writes to the Corinthian church and tells them, you need to discipline your impenitent brother. He brazenly flaunts his illicit relationship with his stepmother. And the rest of the church seems to turn a blind eye to it. In essence, saying, it's inconsequential. It's a small sin. It's inconsequential. Now, you and I look at that and we may have thought, are you kidding me? But you have to remember the culture they're in, first of all. These people are going on like nothing's wrong and we're not going to do anything about it. What might this man's rationalization have been? I can think of one. Again, we're not for sure. But I can think of one that, that maybe is important for us in our culture. Might he have said to himself, since this kind of behavior, this kind of, of thing, I'm not going to call it a sin, he was thinking, is so prevalent in our city, in our culture, it's inconsequential that I'm doing it. Since he reasons most people participate in various kinds of sexual relationships, almost everyone's doing it. Almost everyone's doing it. Even as I look around at the church, my Corinthian brothers and sisters came out of this culture. They used to pretty much all participate in it. And I know they still might struggle with that once past addiction. So, is it a big deal? It's no big deal. It's so common. I'm going to pick a metaphor that Monty used a number of years ago on some other subject. They might have said, he might have said, the train of sexual purity in this culture has left the station. So why fight it anyway? I perceive that our present day culture has reasoned similarly. The prevailing cultural norm is everyone of reasonable age in our culture is entitled 
to a sexual relationship of their choosing. And no one needs to criticize anyone's choice in that regard. You know that's out there. You know the pressure. Paul contends, however, that this is not inconsequential. That this sin, he's talking to the Corinthians, and he will say there are several consequences of significance. First of all, there's a personal consequence to you who commit this sin. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, the next chapter, after this incident is recorded, he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are against his own body, or outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against, against his own body. Paul's making a contrast between this sin and others in a way in terms of this has significant consequences. He's not elaborating to any degree there. He's just saying, trust me, trust God. That this has significant consequences to you personally. But then he would also say in 1 Corinthians 5. That this has a consequence on the church. You think it doesn't? Your boasting is not good. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 6. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Might his doing this cause others in the body to think. I'm not going to resist this addiction that I've had for years in a previous life. Why should I fight it when he's not? Is it really that big a deal for me either? Paul is very seriously saying this could infect the rest of the church. It has tremendous consequences. But I think he'll also say it has, it has an effect on the community. It has an evangelistic aspect to it if you want to use that word what will the society think when they hear about it first corinthians chapter 6 verse 1 i'm sorry chapter 5 verse 1 it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans a man has his father's wife you know as well as i do that we have a culture that looks at us and, and oftentimes looks for flaws, looks for some way to, to dismiss you and me, to dismiss our Lord. And we can't always permit, uh, prevent that, but we can sometimes. We certainly don't need to give ammunition to them to say, see there, that's the hypocrisy I'm talking about. They preach against that and then they're doing that. And so they have rationalization in their minds for dismissing the call of Jesus because we got in the way. There are consequences, Paul claims. One's related to you, one's related to the church, one's related to the community. That's pretty far and wide consequences, isn't it? Have you been there? Maybe not this particular sin or maybe someday in the past. But have you been in some sin where you've said, you know... Everybody's doing it. It's so widespread that what difference does it make? No big deal. Now I'm going to make a twist on this particular approach and come at it from the other direction. Yeah, something small, but a different response to something seemingly small. There are times in the Scripture where where people of God resist 
that small sin, as it were. And they know, I think they know, because there are big consequences, even though it might not seem so. Remember when Daniel and his friends decided not to eat the fine foods from Nebuchadnezzar's court? Because those foods were considered unclean under their Jewish law. I suppose they could have, Daniel could have rationalized, well, here we are over in Babylon. We're not even on our homeland. We're not in the promised land. The temple is in rubble. The priests aren't here to to tell us what the Word of God says. And besides, we're under pressure here. We're under pressure to conform. And, And if we had the chance, and it looks like we do, to rise to positions of influence and power in the kingdom, wouldn't this be worth it? Wouldn't this be justified? The end justifies the means they might have rationalized because it was a small sin. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had the same difficulty or challenge in Daniel chapter 3, didn't they? When Nebuchadnezzar put up that huge image that was about worshiping him and he called on everybody to worship him could Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have rationalized you know we're in positions of authority now we're in a position to to help our people here in the land and and could we not just pretend to do this could we not just keep the the light off of us and get through this we know in our hearts who we really serve And besides, if we're killed because we refuse to do this, what good can we do our people that way? The end justifies the means. They might have thought, but they didn't. Daniel didn't. The friends didn't. The power of that example, when the pressure's on, and we're tempted by the pressure of that or our own lust to rationalize and minimize and think the sin is small and the consequences are inconsequential. When I began my ministry 50 years ago, I encountered a book by Carl Menninger entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. He wrote it in 1973. He bemoaned the fact that in his 70s culture, the word sin was becoming archaic. Archaic not meaning just old, but meaning relating to a primitive time period. When we weren't so enlightened as a nation. In other words, the word sin belonged to an age wherein there were absolutes, yes, but those absolutes were defined right and wrong, by the God of the Bible, and that was an unenlightened time. The title of the book has resurfaced in 2022 by Bill Keith, and he bemoans the same thing. Fifty years down the line, what's changed? He actually, Bill Keith does, especially criticizes pulpits in our land which refuse to preach on sin. Both grieve over and over and criticize our culture and our society for reluctantly terming any wrongdoing as sin. 
basically eradicating the word and the concept from our dictionary and our vocabulary. No one seems to want to accept responsibility by admitting to have sinned or doing wrong, to use those words. There are lawsuits that we hear about against people or companies which result in large payouts from those defendants, but those defendants are allowed to say, we are admitting no wrongdoing. There are plea deals in our legal system which a defendant can accept the penalty because he thinks maybe the evidence is too much for him to fight, but he can still claim he's innocent. Recently, a candidate from the state of New York lied about a number of things about himself in his recent run for Congress. When discovered and faced with those lies and the facts came out, he, he deflected guilt by saying, you know, it wasn't sin, it was embellishment. And that everyone does it, which to him makes it okay. More lies that he continues to bring about are coming out almost daily, it seems like. Few, and he's one of them, don't want to say, they don't want to say with David, I have sinned against the Lord. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. Now that may all be true out there in our society and our culture. And that may not change and it may get worse. But that can't help and happen to be a part of us as the Lord's people. As we've seen in our biblical examples, Satan's ploy or deception to play down the importance of sin. Just, just one sin, just this once. Nobody will know. The end justifies the means. Everyone does it. It's all inconsequential anyway. It's all wrong. So I bring this slide up one more time, but this time I've got a question mark. Without specific sins, because it seems to me that small is defined in the mind of the committer. The sin itself can be pretty much anything, can it? And maybe you've seen it in yourself or others. We just have to rationalize in some way that it's a small sin which is inconsequential in order to salve our consciences. That's the challenge to those of us who are Christians. But just for a minute, while we Christians search our hearts and be honest with ourselves about that, I want to speak to those perhaps in this audience who have never named the name of Jesus. Through the years, I've certainly talked to people who have rationalized why they shouldn't. All kinds of reasons, we, we might call them excuses, but they're rationalizations. As if, as if becoming a Christian is not a big deal. As if, well, maybe it's archaic anyway. Have you through the years come and been a part of an assembly, maybe because of a mate, or maybe because of friends, or maybe some other reason, social. But you have rationalized that, uh, not that big of a deal to become a Christian. The New Testament is very clear. That rationalization has eternal consequences. 
And that's one of the reasons we come together today, to encourage one another to stay the course as Christians. But then we know that sometimes you are among us as well. And we hope you hear that message, and we hope you hear it as from God, saying, I'm appealing to you. I'm appealing through the church to you to take seriously what we celebrated, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and respond to that and become a Christian today, today, while we stand and while we sing.